1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man has his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment on the name, in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the sinful nature so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us, not, uh, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, in that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with any who claim to be fellow believers but are sexually immoral or greedy, idolaters or slanderers, drunkards or swindlers. With such persons, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Uh, well, as Joe pointed out, right now in Australia, uh, sexual assault, sexual immorality is all over the news, uh, from federal parliament right through to uh, our schools and the cultures within them. But the church is not immune. Late last year, uh, allegations of sexual assault came out uh, around the late Ravi Zacharias. Ravi was uh, a world-renowned Christian apologist and evangelist. Uh, he travelled the world uh, debating with famous atheist scholars, uh, sharing uh, the gospel of Jesus with others. Um, he passed away last year, but slowly uh, it's come out that he was using his position and his travel away from home um, to exploit women. Uh, to assault them, using ministry funds and spiritual abuse uh, to keep them quiet. It's a terrible case um, for the sake of the abuses, abuses themselves, um, but also in the abuse of trust, um, the extent to which it was uh, denied and covered up by Ravi and uh, those around him. So, uh, what should we do? What should we do about sexual immorality in the church? Well, um, as you just heard from that reading, um, the Bible has a lot to say about it, has very real practical things to say about how we deal with situations like that. And 1 Corinthians 5 deals with that exact question, how do we deal with a case of sexual immorality in the church? Uh, let's read verse 1 there. It is actually reported 
that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. Uh, Right here, as we uh, teach our way through 1 Corinthians, we find uh, a case of profound sexual immorality. Uh, The pagans in Corinth, they weren't prudes. You know, you had to work pretty hard to find something that they wouldn't be into and yet here it is, the Corinthian church has managed it. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And so tonight, uh, we're going to ask the question, how should the church respond to a situation like this, to sexual immorality? What does Paul want them to do in this situation? And then we're going to ask, uh, what about us as a church? Uh, What should we do about sexual immorality in our church amongst us? So, first up, what does Paul want them to do about this situation? He gives them one action and two reasons. One action and two reasons. The action is there in verse 5. He says, hand this man over to Satan. Now, what does that mean, right? What does that mean? How does a church give someone to Satan? Sounds something like a cult, cultish kind of thing to do. Uh, But the rest of the chapter actually explains it. Have a look at verse 2. He says, shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who's been doing this? Or verse 11, uh, but now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister but is sexually immoral. Or verse 13, expel the wicked person from among you. See the point? They're to exclude this person from the church body. To hand someone over to Satan is, is to say, say that spiritually, to to hand them over to Satan, to exclude them from the church body. If they won't live as a Christian, then the church needs to make it explicit that he's not a Christian. And so now, you might be thinking, wow, that is harsh, right? That's really harsh. I thought the church was meant to be loving and inclusive. And here you are saying that we deliberately need to exclude someone out. That's terrible. But if you stop and think about it, Every group in society has a limit on its membership. You know, even uh, think about uni. If you copy uh, your essays off the internet, uh, then uni is going to kick you out. They are. Uh, You'll face uni discipline and they'll expel you. Because it goes against their very reason for existing, doesn't it? Uh, they're, They're there to educate people. And if you cut across that, then you can't belong to the uni. And that's what's happening here. This man is living in a way that fundamentally goes against what it means to be a Christian. And so, of course, he can't belong to a church while he's doing that. He has to face church discipline, just like you'd face uni discipline if you plagiarise. And actually, the world is crying out for the church to exercise proper church discipline. Every time we hear about uh, a scandal like Ravi Zacharias, every time there's a case of sexual abuse in the church, people rightly ask, why wasn't this person stopped? Why wasn't something done about it? How could you know about it and not get rid of this guy? They should have been called to account and thrown out. Certainly, that's, they're, the, they're the questions people have been asking about the Ravi Zacharias situation. Why wasn't this stopped? Why didn't he lose his position? No, it's good and right that the church has 
borders. And the NIV um, gets the tenses right as you're reading it. It says he is sleeping with his father's wife. That is, it's an ongoing, unrepentant situation. This is something he's continuing to do. And so I want to kind of point that out as a word of comfort to you. See, this isn't talking about the sin that you struggle to beat. You know, if you keep falling down and, and, and struggle with sin, but you keep asking for forgiveness, then that's okay. That's called the Christian life. That's what it's like. Uh, that's not what's going on here. See, this guy isn't praying for strength to fight this sin and trying to get out of it. No, he isn't fighting sin at all. He's claiming to be a Christian and happily continuing on in a life that completely contradicts that. So that's the action. They have to stop that. They have to put this man out of their church fellowship, hand him over to Satan. So this uh, church discipline that's happening has one action, expel this guy, but two reasons, two reasons, for the man's eternity and for the church's integrity. For the man's eternity. For the man's eternity and for the church's integrity. Let's uh, unpack those for a bit. Uh, Firstly, can you see it's for the man's eternity. Verse 5. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that, here's the purpose, so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Now, again, it's a little bit confusing. What does destruction of the flesh mean? Um, But the next bit does make sense of it. It's so that his spirit may be saved. The intention behind it is for his eternal salvation. See, it's not payback against this guy. Um, Church discipline isn't a power play. Um, It's a salvation play. The goal is for this man's eternity. Because it gives this guy an alert that he's not okay with God if he keeps on going like this. He needs to get rid of his selfish desires. And that's what Paul means by flesh or, or sinful desire. Um, it's, it's that um, direction of ourselves that goes against God. And Paul says that he needs to destroy its hold over him. But the goal, notice that the goal is that he comes back. The aim is to jolt him into action so that he'll wake up to the eternal consequences of his sin. Firstly, it's for the man's eternity. But secondly, it's for the church's integrity. It's for the man, but it's also for the church, for the church's integrity. Uh, You see that in these weird verses about the bread and the yeast there in verses 6 to 8. Essentially, uh, Paul is here describing the church as bread, Um, So stay with us. This is going to make sense. We just need to get through. Uh, He wants them to be a new unleavened batch, as you really are, it says there. Okay, so what is he trying to say? Uh, The analogy works a bit like this, I think. Um, Bread, I don't know if any of you are bakers, but um, bread is fundamentally changed by what you put in it. So put in a little bit of yeast and it goes from being kind of like a flat bread to tip-top mighty white, and you get the big, fluffy, lovely bread. But notice that it's changed. The integrity of the original thing is broken by adding the yeast. And Paul's saying the same thing is true for the church. Unrepentant sin 
compromises the integrity of the church because it stops the church from being what it's meant to be. It stops the church from being a people who are forgiven and who throw off sin and live differently for the Lord Jesus. And then it just becomes like any other social club where anything goes uh, full of wickedness and immorality. See, the integrity of the church is at risk here. And the bread analogy has this Old Testament connection as well. Uh, because unleavened bread was a special part of the Passover festival. Uh, we're coming up to Pas- Passover with Easter. Um, and the original Passover in the Old Testament uh, was when God rescued Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And they were told on the Passover night to take a lamb, to kill it, and to put the, the blood of the lamb on the door frames of their houses. And when the Lord brought his anger on Egypt, he would pass over those houses that had the blood of the, on the, of the lamb on them. And uh, kind of as part of this, uh, they had to leave Egypt quickly. And so one of the kind of special things about that night was that they were to make bread without yeast, so that they could leave quickly because they didn't have time to let it rise. And so uh, here, when, when we get to 1 Corinthians, um, the Israelites had been celebrating this Passover fe- festival for centuries. And the Passover festival tries to remember all of that. And as part of the Passover meal, uh, Jewish people would go through the house and they'd get rid of all their yeast. And Paul says, look at that. That's the, that's the picture you need. He takes the Passover event and the festival and he says, that's what the Christian life is like. Get rid of the yeast. Get rid of the sin out of your life. Have a look there at the reason in verse 7. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Just like the lamb, the blood of the lamb was painted on the door frames to rescue God's people. Paul says, look, Our Passover lamb has been sacrificed as well. His blood has been painted over our door. We've been rescued. A bigger, better Passover has happened. Rescued from slavery to sin by Jesus' blood. We've been made into a new people. And so the response is to get rid of the yeast. Be the Passover bread that God has made you to be. Get rid of the sin out of your life. Get rid of the sin out of your church as well. Be a new unleavened batch as you really are. See, what does Paul want them to do about this sexual immorality that's ongoing among them? One action, expel this guy. Two reasons, for the man's eternity and for the church's integrity. So that lays out uh, this passage. But what about us? What about us as a church? What does God want us to do uh, about sexual immorality and about church discipline amongst us? See, this is a pretty extreme case here in Corinth, um, but as Paul talks about it, we can see some principles um, that we can apply as we think about uh, what, it, what it means to have church discipline here. And I want to um, pull out just uh, a couple of points. Uh, firstly, our church discipline needs to be internal and it needs to be incremental. Internal and incremental. So firstly, uh, it needs to be internal. That is, not secret, but focused on us. 
Uh, church discipline is for those inside the church and not those outside. Uh, let's have a read at verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or, and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave the world. See, uh, this isn't asking you to step away from your non-Christian friend because they're sleeping around or because they watch porn. See, they don't have to hold to Christian ethics because they're not Christian. We don't need to enforce that. Um, see, if you had to avoid anyone in our society who was greedy, then you couldn't go to the shops. In fact, you'd literally have to go to the moon to keep that command. We can't do that. No, church discipline applies to the church, to members of the church. Verse 11, he says, But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy or so on. See, our church discipline will only apply to you if you call yourself a Christian and if you become part of the life of Uni Church here. Uh, the main way that you establish that those things are true is by regularly taking communion with us. Uh, that's kind of how you publicly say, yes, I'm a Christian. And yes, I'm willing to be held to the standard of life that follows from belonging to Jesus. And I, I want people to help me to do that. That's what you're saying. And so if you're a uni churcher and you regularly take communion here, uh, then it's our responsibility as a church to love you enough to have a difficult word with you. Because if you are in an ongoing, settled, uh, sexually immoral relationship, or if you are persistently greedy and unrepentant about it, a swindler, someone who gossips and lies and thinks that's okay, then you're saying with your actions that you don't have Jesus as Lord. And because our church discipline is going to be internal, it's going to be for the people of God to help the people of God to be who they are. Uh, for your eternity and for our integrity as a church. As we're saying, that the fact that church discipline is internal is actually a relief. It's a great relief. It means that we don't have to be the moral police of our society. Have a look at verse 12. Uh, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. See how that's good news? See, it's not up to you and me to kind of watch over our society and tut-tut when, you know, there's any kind of moral slipping. No, we can pray for them. We can, we can contend for what is good, but we don't have to hold our friends to our morality. We don't have to do that. And maybe um, that's you here tonight. Maybe you're here, uh, you're just checking out church, but you don't call yourself a Christian. You're not someone who claims to be a brother or sister. Uh, please know that we don't judge you. We don't expect you to live in a way that Jesus says, if you don't have Jesus as your king. We certainly don't hold you to that. And we don't actually want you to be here and to copy our moral framework. We're not really on about that. We want you to meet Jesus. 
We want you to know everything that he's done for you. That's step one. This passage says that if you're not a Christian, you don't have to answer to us. But you do have to answer to God. And he does care about how you live. He does care about the choices you make. And he does want you to find forgiveness in the Lord Jesus. He does want you to be made new and to live for him. And we'd love to help you find out about that. But we're not here to hold you to our standard that we expect. When it comes to church discipline, we focus on ourselves, internal, because we want to live wholeheartedly for the Lord Jesus. Secondly, it needs to be incremental. Now, this case is like so extreme, right? This is DEFCON 1. That is the bad version. That's, that, this is total crisis mode. Uh, but if you turn to other places in the Bible, like Matthew 18, you get a bit more detail about the whole thing and you find that uh, church discipline is incremental. That is, that there's these four stages and it incrementally goes from uh, private to public. And so to start with, if you see someone who is in an ongoing unrepentant sin, the thing to do is to talk to them. Just to, to bring it up privately between the two of you to try and win them back, to help them to see uh, the ways in which they might live for the Lord Jesus if they live differently. Uh, only then do you involve other Christians or the church family and only as a last resort do we actually want to expel someone from the fellowship. No, we want to do this slowly. We want to give people time to, to think, to repent, to change, to disentangle themselves from sin. And if we're going to do that, then we need a culture where we can call each other to account for sin. Not to pick up every uh, slip-up that, that happens and to kind of haul everyone over the coals, but when we're heading in a direction without repentance, away from God, to actually intervene and to say, hey, watch out. And for us to know that that's a loving thing to do. How are we going to do church discipline here at Uni Church? How are we going to deal with sexual immorality? Uh, we're going to do it in internally. We're going to focus on ourselves and it'll be incremental. We're going to help each other bit by bit. Now, maybe that's the first time you've heard this. Uh, maybe you had no idea that here at church someone was going to call you on sin. But can I reassure you that it's a good thing? It means that we're trying to love you. We want you to to come back to God, to live wholeheartedly for him. We care about your eternity. And it means you, that you belong to a church that cares about who it is. We care about being a church of integrity uh, as people who are saved by Jesus. And so our discipline is going to be internal and incremental. That takes us through this passage. But I want to finish with something that we've missed. Because did you notice the Corinthians' problem is deeper than just this guy? There's a problem behind the problem. See, the frontline problem is that this guy is sleeping with his stepmother, but the problem behind the problem is the Corinthian reaction. Did you notice that? A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud... And you are proud. Paul is gobsmacked. 
yes, this guy's committing incest, but you're welcoming him. You're welcoming him in and you're still proud of yourselves. Somehow the Corinthians had managed to keep on boasting about how spiritual they were. Maybe they were just like ignoring this sin. Uh, Maybe they were overlooking it because this guy was someone important. Maybe they were even celebrating it. Look how enlightened we are. Even this guy can be part of our church. And that's a message for us today. Churches are under more and more pressure to call sin okay, to ignore it or to overlook it, maybe even celebrate it, even in things that the Bible clearly calls sin. And we can't do that. We can't be proud of sin in our midst even if it's a sin that is is widely accepted in our culture, that can't be us. We need to find a way of loving people who are struggling in sin. We need to find a way of sharing the gospel with people who don't live a lifestyle that looks like us. But we can't say that sin is okay and welcome it in as part of our fellowship. And notice too maybe in a more difficult way, uh, that we're not just talking about sexual immorality anymore at this point. Uh, There in verse 11, Paul expands the list to a bunch of other things which are maybe a lot closer to home. He says it applies to the sexually immoral or the greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. If we have uni churches getting drunk regularly, uh, uni churches who watch porn and think that's no problem, uh, uni churches who spend their money selfishly from start to finish and say, yep, that's all right. This passage says, no, it's not all right. You have to take action. Don't just sit there and boast about how good your Bible studies are. You've got no right to boast if your integrity's gone, if you're not willing to discipline yourselves. Paul comes out pretty hard on the Corinthians, not just for the case of incest, but their reaction to it. How should the church respond to sexual immorality? Well, this passage says we should bring it to light, uh, to deal with it openly and honestly. Uh, It's what didn't happen in the Ravi Zacharias scandal. It was a scandal because it was kept hidden. It wasn't addressed. And it's been um, positive to see in the light of it coming out, uh, Christians within that organisation and elsewhere um, trying to be honest about dealing with the reality of sexual assault and sexual immorality within the church. And I want to say that if, if that's something that you've experienced... Uh, or that you're struggling with, please come and talk to me. One of the things that we often say here in the Anglican Church is that we take a zero-tolerance approach to sexual immorality of any kind, uh, certainly sexual abuse in the church. So if you have things to share, please bring them to me. Uh, We want to bring them to light so that we can deal with them. And we want to do it in the light of the Gospel. 
in light of the sacrifice that Jesus has made as our Passover lamb. The sacrifice that forgives us, that gives us grace, that makes us new. We're to do it in light of the gospel. And we're to use that gospel to help us to live out the new reality of who we're made to be. And God has given us each other to help us to live out that reality by encouraging each other to get rid of sin and to live as the new batch that he's made us to be.